Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, biopharma companies and biotech investors are bracing for the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. We get you up to speed with what we are hearing, and we'll discuss the latest cut of data for Amgen's closely watched KRAS inhibitor and Chinese car teas in ESMO Spotlight. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It's scheduled for November 14th to 16th in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. Early bird expiration is this Thursday, September 16th. Don't miss out on the opportunity to register and save. You can visit BiocentryEastWest.com and download the latest brochure with preliminary agenda and the schedule at a glance. All right, Steve, you recently spoke with the CEOs of Eli Lilly and Novartis, David Ricks, Vas Narasimhan, about the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed a few weeks ago. What have you been hearing? So they they both said the same thing. The IRA is making pharma rethink its pipelines and its investments. They agree that the negotiation is a misnomer, that the the government really is going to have the power to set prices Medicare pays. The term that uh, David Ricks used is he said, it's a deal you can't refuse, all of the godfather. They assume that the prices that the government's going to set are going to be very low. Both of them said that they think that it's essentially going to be the same consequences as a loss of exclusivity event. That means basically when a drug goes generic and a brand manufacturer loses the whole market. The nine-year period for setting the prices for Medicare small molecules is going to slash about 60% of the revenues from the typical small molecule drug, Rick's told me. And he said that valuations are going to be cut accordingly. Many small molecules that could have been developed for conditions that affect the Medicare population will no longer be economically feasible. Ricks and Narasimhan agreed that the nine years for small molecules and 13 years for biologics is also going to make it a lot more difficult to do sequential drug development. And this could force changes to the way cancer drugs are typically developed, for example, which start often with the late stage patients who have no good options and they gra- the companies gradually test earlier stages and more common types of cancer. But if you know that the drug sales are going to go away after nine years for a small molecule, it's going to be really hard to justify studying a new indication starting in year five or for a biologic starting in year eight. Yeah, I mean, they talked about this. and I think it's one of the really big parts of this. As someone who grew up in the UK in the 70s, it's really hard for me to pull this IRA. But can you spell out why this act makes it difficult or irrelevant, let's say, to do the the sequential drug development, the second and third and fourth indications. I think that for some of our audience, that's not intuitively understood based on whether. Okay. So if you look at it, you look at it for the the way that the law is set up, Medicare is going to set the prices of the most expensive small molecules after nine years after they've been on the market, the most expensive to Medicare biologics 13 years after they've been on the market. 
typically now what happens is that most drugs have 14 to 16 years to go, right? But 14 to 16 years of marketing before they are subject to generic or biosimilar competition. What Ricks and Narasimhan said is that if you have this date certain, especially for the small molecules of nine years, and say it takes you two, three years to complete a study of a drug and demonstrate its um, safety and efficacy in a population, and then there's a slow ramp up very often. It's not like you get full peak sales on day one. There's a slow ramp up of sales that the economics are not going to work out to start studying new indications four, five, six years into the, after the marketing has started for a, a small molecule drug because you're not going to have enough time to, to generate a return on it. And similarly for biologics, it's the same issue, but it'll be pushed out a little bit farther because typically what happens now, if you start studying a new indication late in the life of a small molecule or a, a biologic, you have the possibility of getting that indication patented and you get some more life out of it, right? But if there's a date certain, it's nine years for small molecules, it's 13 years for biologics with some exceptions, then what they both said is that that's going to make it very challenging and in some cases impossible to do sequential drug development. So once it's on the market, people can, and gone down to a lower price, it's basically, you can't charge a higher price for a new indication. Yeah, you can't you can't charge anything for a new indication. Basically, I mean, the government's going to set what that price is going to be, at least for the Medicare population. There's uh -huh. a lot of things that we were going to have to learn about how this whole thing is going to roll out. And maybe this is a time to start talking about how the investors are also thinking about it, because I wrote a story about that. But one of the things is the assumption that the pharma CEOs have that the price that CMS is going to set for these drugs is going to be very, very low. It's just that. It's an assumption. We don't we don't know that. We don't know how CMS is going to go about coming up with prices. The law sets a ceiling for what the price is. It starts with a 25% discount over the over the average price for the drug based on the number of years that the drug has been on the market. That ceiling goes down, but there's no floor. So that's one of the uncertainties that we just don't know how that's going to play out. Steve, let's turn to the investors. What are you hearing there? Are they running away from small molecules already and turning to more biologics investments? Or are they taking a wait and see approach? So I spoke with a number of investors and there were some investors who told me that they weren't ready to talk about this because they haven't finished thinking about it. Peter Kolchinsky of RA Capital, who's been very involved with the legislation, he tried to persuade Congress to change the way that the law was drafted and was unsuccessful in that. In any case, Peter Kolchinsky told me that it is affecting, already affecting the decisions that RA Capital is making. It's not that it's impossible for them to invest in small molecules now, but he said that there are a series of questions that any company that's developing a small molecule has to answer in order to be investable. And he, was, he expressed frustration that a lot of the companies aren't thinking hard enough about the answers to these kinds of questions. Other investors, Shelly Chu from Lightspeed Partners, Nina Kelson from Canaan Partners, Peter Thompson from Orbamed, they all said that they're going to be watching pharma very closely. One of the things that they emphasized is that David Ricks from Lilly, Boston R. Simon from Novartis said that pharma companies are thinking about dramatically changing their BD strategies and their pipeline prioritization, but they didn't actually say what their companies are going to do or what timeline they're going to do it, do it on. 
So what these investors said is basically they're going to be looking very closely, not just at what these big pharmas say, but at what they do. And if these companies start to change their BD strategies to shun small molecules, it's going to have a huge effect on what the VCs do, where they're willing to invest. So a couple of things. First of all, I sort of want to double down on what Peter Kolchinsky said. You know, I've been to a few meetings recently. This is a huge deal. And, you know, companies, small companies really, really need to be following what goes on. I actually, I don't do this a lot, but I really encourage people to be reading our coverage on this. We will not take our foot off the gas because everybody is trying to understand what it means. And whether it's from us or other places, but small companies really need to be aware that this is going to affect their partnering potential with large farmers and their investment, you know, whether whether people would invest with them. It doesn't mean that they need to change everything overnight. But like Peter Kolchinsky said, they need to show that they have thought about it and that they are aware of it and understand that some agility is going to be needed. I think that there are some really interesting areas of the law that, and we'll still, as I said, continue to cover this. One thing I know that came up, Steve, in your conversation with FAS was that, for example, siRNA is currently categorized as a small molecule. And so there's this idea that maybe there's some opportunities for changing in the law regarding how specific molecular species are characterized that could also end up influencing things. And so now I'm going to sort of throw that back to you in a question, Steve, which is how, how much is sort of completely ingrained versus still subject to change in this law? So there's two parts of the answer to that. The first is how the government's going to implement the law, and that's unknown. The biggest question on that is going to be whether whether they're going to do the price negotiation or the price setting aspects of the law through notice and comment rulemaking or simply through guidance. The law gives CMS the authority to do it simply through guidance, which is basically they're just going to figure out how they're going to do it and then just tell the world, this is what we're doing. What the industry is hoping for is that they will decide to do it through notice and comment rulemaking. That will give a lot more advanced notice of what they're planning to do and how they're planning to do it. More importantly, it would allow companies to comment on it and the government to say whether they're willing to take on board the advice that they get from companies. And honestly, it'll provide more scope for the industry to sue CMS and the government if they don't like the way that that the law is going to be implemented. The second aspect is, will Congress have any appetite to change the law? I spoke with David Beyer, who has had a number of positions in government. He was Vice President Al Gore's domestic policy advisor. He headed Amgen's federal government relations for many years. Now he's at Bay City Capital. He expressed some confidence that Congress will be willing to change the law if the effects are as pernicious as what David Ricks and Vasnar Simon have predicted. That's going to take some time, though, and there's going to be a lot. There's a lot of uncertainty involved in getting any kind of legislative changes. I also know that there are representatives of some of the companies that have what they believe are very complex and innovative products that are classified as small molecules. And they're hoping to get kind of a carve out so that they'll have the same 13 years as biologics. It's really hard to tell how much appetite Congress is going to have to make those changes. I think you can say with with certainty, this session of Congress isn't going to do it. It's not going to happen between now and the end of the year. 
in the next Congress, well, I think all bets are off. I certainly wouldn't bet on them doing anything rapidly along those lines. That's really helpful, Steve. I mean, I just want to end with a couple of thoughts on this particular topic. You know, one thing that seems to emerge with the people that I've been speaking to is for years, industry assumed that no change would ever really happen in terms of regulating prices in the US. Maybe they buried their heads in the sand. Maybe they just perpetually said no. And here it is, it's happened. And now is the time for movers and shakers in the industry to try and shape this going forward. They kind of didn't really do a great job in terms of shaping what has been presented to them. And there's a certain window, some people think it's about five years or whatever, where industry could say, look, this is something that we can live with and please sort of move it in this direction rather than just pushing it back on everything and saying no. And I think there's another thing that's going to take, you know, a very long time to understand I don't know if it'll happen, but whether this is actually going to force or prompt any kind of technology changes to make industry more efficient so that actually it can stop making, you know, to change the timelines of drug development. This is something that everybody's wanted to do for so long, and it still just takes a ridiculously long time to get drugs, you know, from idea. There's two other things I think that are important that are unknown considerations here. One of them is whether companies will be able to have differential pricing for Medicare and private payers. That's something that Vosnera Simon suggested to me that a plain reading of the law will allow. That would, I think it would do two things. One, it would allow companies to continue to make a return on drugs where the prices are regulated by Medicare if they're drugs that have both a Medicare and a non-Medicare market. We've already seen that effect in other aspects of Medicare. What Medicare pays hospitals, what they provide, pay physicians is quite different from what they're paid by the um, private sector. And the other thing everyone says is there's a possibility that uh, one of the ways that companies will attempt to compensate is through higher launch prices. There's a great deal of concern about that. Uh, one, because, of course, it would provoke a political backlash if Congress sees a huge jump in launch prices. As a result of this, they're going to say, well, wait a second, that's not what we signed up for. And the other issue, of course, is how much elasticity there really is in launch prices, especially if small molecules are going to be competing against biologics. On the one hand, biologics tend to have higher costs associated with development and manufacturing and and higher launch prices. On the other hand, they're going to have a longer period for which they could gain a return under the IRA. So they may have more flexibility in the launch prices. And, and then I should mention one other thing really quickly before I dominate the whole conversation too much, which is that another aspect of this law is that there are measures that make it virtually impossible for companies to increase the prices of drugs to Medicare faster or, or at a rate that's higher than the rate of inflation. So just simply increasing the prices of drugs is not going to be an option. All right. Well, Steve, thank you for the deep dive there. Certainly, you're going to continue watching this, reporting on this. We, we've we actually made a, a special landing page on our website to house your stories. And it's a topic we'll return to on the pod again and again as we continue to digest the fallout from the legislation. But let's turn to the clinic. We have fresh data for Amgen's Lumacross. Last year, the drug received accelerated approval as a monotherapy to treat patients 
with KRAS G12C mutated locally advanced or metastatic non-small lung cancer. And that approval made it the first targeted therapy approved for NSCLC patients with this mutation and the first KRAS inhibitor overall to reach the finish line. Lauren, what do the latest data mean for Amgen's chances at full approval for the therapy this year? So the data that we've seen today is for the phase three confirmatory trial for the same indication that Lumacras gained approval for last year. And the results are a little disappointing. I think this is raising a few doubts that that accelerated approval will be converted to a full approval. You know, we certainly don't know what's going to happen, but this trial had a PFS endpoint and it did meet the endpoint, but the PFS was not as impressive as it was in the phase one, two study that led to the accelerated approval. There was about a month difference between the treatment arm and the chemotherapy control arm. So that was one concerning part, but I think what, what has a lot of people sort of stopping in their tracks is the fact that overall survival is actually trending a little bit worse in the Lumacross arm than in the chemotherapy arm. And this is coming during a year when we've seen FDA really cracking down on these cancer drugs that are not showing an overall survival benefit in the confirmatory studies or in, you know, in other uh, post-approval studies. And in those cases, it was sort of very linked to safety uh, of the therapies. I think here it's just the the benefit, the efficacy benefit that we're seeing is is pretty small and the liver toxicity is an issue. So, you know, it's very slight. The hazard ratio was 1.01, but that does mean that the patient survived a little bit longer in the the chemotherapy arm than, than the treatment arm. I think investors are a little concerned. The stock is off a little bit today. Um, we're seeing before between a four and five billion dollar market cap hit. So this is hugely important for Amgen and for their future market share, because if they get this conversion to a full approval, that means that the closest competitor, Marathi, may not be able to get an accelerated approval. So that will push their timeline way back for when they could get their first KRAS inhibitor onto the market for this indication. That has a December Padufa date. So, Lauren, I was actually going to ask you exactly to think about the competition. It's a very, very hot space, right? There's a few people nipping at Amgen's heels. Is there reason to believe that the other competitor molecules will suffer the same fate as Lumacras? Or might they be looking at it thinking, okay, Amgen's got a problem, but we don't have that problem. So is it going to be a class effect, I guess, is what I'm asking? So we haven't seen the same uh, the same level of liver toxicity for the other some of the other KRAS inhibitors that we've seen data for, but but it certainly it, it does exist. But Marathi's adagrasib has shown consistently slightly better responses than Lumacrest. So whether or not that will lead to a meaningfully different overall survival benefit, I think is unclear at this time. But it's something we'll have to watch for. And just looking at the stocks, Marathi is up a couple of ticks, about 2% as we record this podcast. And these data came at the European Society of Medical Oncology meeting. This year's crop of ESMO abstracts also offers a look into where next generation CAR-T innovation is originating. 
And Lauren, you focused on how Chinese biotechs are faring with their CAR Ts. What did you find? So I took a look at the solid tumor CAR T cell therapies. This is a space where we haven't seen as much progress, certainly as we've seen with the hematological cancers. And when I was going through all the abstracts, I noticed that there were quite a few that there were quite a few examples of data from CAR T cell therapies in solid tumors that were coming from Chinese biotechs. And in all of these cases, the data were coming from investigator-initiated studies. So, you know, it's been hard to translate this modality to solid tumors. There are a bunch of challenges. You know, the solid tumor microenvironment makes it hard for the T-cells to get in. There are a lack of selective targets for solid tumors. And it's just, it's been a slow process. But it seems like these investigator-initiated studies are becoming an increasingly popular strategy among Chinese biotechs for testing these higher-risk technologies, particularly new CAR T-cell technologies. You know, this is not necessarily data that will be able to go into any kind of regulatory application. You know, we're not sure exactly how international regulators will take the data, but it's kind of um, a pre-phase one, a way to sort of pressure test an idea or a target to see whether this is worth doing the IND process, doing a full phase one trial. So we found four abstracts that attested solid tumor CAR T cell targets that we have not seen data from a full phase one trial before uh, among Yasmo abstracts. So Lauren, are these mostly going after the same um, CAR T targets that are already known? The ones from the ESMO abstracts are looking at new targets. These are targets that we've known about, but that we haven't seen clinical data for. But I also looked into clinicaltrials.gov, which likely does not capture nearly all of the ongoing studies in China, particularly the investigator-initiated studies. But there, there was a huge number of trials in solid tumors. Some, some were in targets that I have not seen before for CAR T-cells. So there's a lot of interesting work going on. And we'll, of course, continue to watch that. Thank you, Lauren. Lauren's analysis is available on biocentry.com, as is Steve's series of stories on the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, Lauren's look at Amgen's latest data. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 